Hi, this is Bonnie Bramlett, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast with your panties on. Welcome to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party, a Pantheon podcast. Music, culture, conversation, and good old-fashioned rock and roll. So now, I give you Miss Pamela and her pajama party. Hello, dolls. Today I have such a thrilling guest. I know I often say that because all my guests are thrilling, but this is someone I love so dearly and is a good friend of mine, Jake Labatz. He is from Chicago. I guess you'd call him a blues man, but he it's so much more than that. And his story is so incredible, and he's playing, going to play a whole bunch of songs for us, which I'm so excited about. So let's welcome my dear friend, Jake Labatz. Another gesture from the novelty store. Oh, what a bore. Oh, what a gang It's tragic, really It's not even silly A total waste of energy Well, today I have a friend of mine here. I'm so thrilled to see you, Jake. This is Jake Labatz, one of my absolute favorite humans, favorite musicians, favorite everything, Jake Labatz. That means a lot. And, you know, <laughs> I, I feel the same way. And I'm so glad that I get to, like, do this on your couch. I know. He's Reseda. actually here in person. Yeah. It's so fabulous and such a blessing. He played my... My patio Saturday, oh, Sunday. Mm-hmm. Jake played my patio Sunday. And, you know, we had a few people. I couldn't invite the hundreds I usually do because of the darn virus. Yeah, but you know what? Like playing your patio, it's a, it's a very special environment. Um, you know, you, you curate a situation here. Yeah. And yeah. the people who come are very interesting people, to say the least. And I mean, I've played, I don't know how many parties I've played at your houses. So many. <laughs> Every time, you know, you have your uh, your cast of uh, friends, but it's always, you know, there's some, some of the same people and some different people. And I have these, the most interesting conversations. Oh, good. And like, you know, on Sunday, it was such an intimate show. Yeah. yeah and it, it just felt like, you know, we were there together and. I really loved it. I had a great time. Everyone was so attentive. Of course, I make them shut the F up. <laughs> That's, That's true. They're afraid of you. They're a little afraid. <laughs> I think they are. <laughs> ah, I turn around and give them the evil eye if they're whispering even. <laughs> well, so I want to go back to when I met you. Well, we're going to go back further than that. But um, I met you with our friend Asia, who said, you have to meet this guy. 
Had you just come to L.A. at that point, 13, 14 years ago? No, I, I moved here in 96. Oh, wow. OK. And I met you probably early 2000s, I think. Uh, it was 14 years ago. I remember exactly when it was. Oh, wow. Yeah, because it was my almost my 60th birthday. Oh, and yeah. you came to you came to that in, in a suit and tie. I can still see Jake walking in with a big bag of gifts <laughs> in a suit and tie. I had met you pretty recently. So that's only seven, 13 and a half years ago about when I met you. Asia brought you over to one of my yard sales. Do you remember remember that? I remember the yard sale. <laughs> and I also remember uh, talking to you at the cinema bar. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, around that same time. Yeah, it was around the same time. Mm -hmm. Asia is very good, our friend Asia, about hooking people up uniting people you know she thinks that we'll get along you know yeah, she's always true. done that yeah yeah she's like a friend matchmaker she is <laughs> that's a good thing to be but i want to go back even further i want to go all the way back to when you first started deciding to play music you know i deciding to play music is an interesting concept i don't know if i've i've really thought about it that way until you just put it that way huh when i was really young it, it, you know five six seven eight years old i was obsessed with the beatles particularly um we had some beatles records we had you know beatles bob dylan rolling stones some soul music janice joplin and you know, stuff like that around the house and johnny cash and you know i listened to all those records and whatever little kid records johnny appleseed or something <laughs> but um, you know, there's some difficult situations in the house, in the home life. And I, and part of that led me to just spending a lot of time alone, listening to the saddest songs I could find and playing them over and over again as a way, I think, to be in touch with my emotions. Like it gave me like a place where I could actually be with the emotions, what mm -hmm. was happening for me, which I didn't know how to be with, but somehow those songs gave like a space to do that. Mm, that's you know? wonderful. I don't know what, Hey Jude, so songs like that, you know, yeah. sad kind of intense. Melancholy. Melancholic songs. Yeah. Exactly. Uh -huh. And I stayed really obsessed with music, um, you know, into my you know, early teens. I, went to uh my first concert was i, I got obsessed with reggae at, at, at a certain point my first like big concert was jimmy cliff and peter tosh that's great and my uncle who was kind of a nutty uh guy uh who didn't have any money i had to pay for us to go to the show i had like some my little, little jobs you know whatever i could do cleaning up a place passing out pizza flyers in chicago where i grew up and I had a little money saved up and I was visiting uh, my family in San Diego and, and I wanted to go to that show and he, I needed somebody to drive me. So I yeah. had to pay for his ticket. But he says, you know, let's go early. Those guys are going to be in the bus. They're going to pull around back. We got to go meet the guys. And I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. And we went around back and sure enough, the bus pulled up and wow. Jimmy Cliff with this huge cloud of pot smoke <laughs> and like a bongo and he walks out and he was like shook our hands and gave us backstage passes and he was just the nicest guy and what were you 15 or something I think I was 13 years wow, old wow I was 13 probably wanting to see that amazing eighth grade kind of or something you know yeah <gasps> how did you it was in your household that's how you heard it yeah person? my dad who was a socialist he is still alive actually he's still a socialist uh he, <laughs> he was like in a very you know hardcore lefty political scene and 
it seemed like everybody in that scene had the early Bob Marley records and they had that, the soundtrack to the harder they come, the Jimmy Cliff right, you know, right. movie. Huh. And so I, we had like, uh, the record Natty Dread by, by Jim, by, uh, Bob Marley. And we had, you know, the harder they come. So I knew who the artists were. And then I, I started digging in myself a little bit, go to the library. That's where I would go find records to listen to. Cause they were free. Yeah, You could just sit there with the headphones on and listen and play them over and over and over again, which is what I wanted to do. And no, nobody really wanted to hear me listen to the same song over and over again at home, probably. Yes. I did the same thing. <laughs> I bet because you're a music fanatic. I like remember I Elvis's Treat Me Nice. I, I had to play it in this on my little 45 over and over and over to my mom said, would you please? <laughs> and I was nine. Oh, so so I started pretty early, too. <laughs> yeah, it was just in you. But over and over, like, I totally get it. You can't. That's not enough. Dion's love came to me still. I have to play several times in a row. Wow, so yeah. good. Love Dion. <laughs> yeah, me too. Look, I just got his new record. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I, I was obsessed with music. I went in different phases, you know, like the old rock and roll stuff, of course, and reggae and soul music and blues. I was starting to discover when I was about 14 because I grew up in Chicago. Yeah. And there was, you know, there was like a, this somebody had, there was an old sign on a building near my house and it said Howlin' Wolf every Tuesday. God. And I didn't know what a Howlin' Wolf was, but I was like, and there's a picture of a wolf. And I thought, man, that is just the coolest thing. Like, I want to know what a Howlin' Wolf is. And then, of course, I, I found out there were radio stations in Chicago where you could find, you know, um, blues uh, uh, shows that were still playing. Hmm. And um, so I started to listen to the chess, you know, record stuff and. Um, and the punk rock scene was happening. That was big. The hardcore scene, 1982, 83, when I was 14, 15, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which was great for me because I, I didn't really fit in anywhere. I was trying to like do theater, like any kind of weird thing where I might find a home. And the punk rock scene was kind of a, a real home for me in a way, because it seemed like no matter what you were into, that you could live there. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're a weird kid into reggae, you could live there. And I like the punk rock stuff too. And I got into that. I like the, you know, stage diving. I like the scene and the clothes and the whole thing, uh -huh. the vibe, the community. What bands did you relate to back then? Punk bands? Um, I, you know, I, I remember liking the LA stuff and the DC stuff, you know, like uh, the SST bands, uh, like a uh, black flag and uh, Saxon trust. Oh yeah. Extra the earlier punk I loved stuff. X, yeah. I, I really dug the earlier punk stuff too, like that. And you know, the British stuff, the, the, you know, the, um, pistols or the, later, the pistols, the buzzcocks, you know, those uh -huh. kinds of bands huh. that I really love x-ray specs, all those kind of bands. Uh, and, um, yeah. And then we had bands in Chicago and, you know, they had the hardcore scene in, in DC and, and, you know, we had bands like Husker Du and Minor Threat were coming mm. through town. And mm -hmm. I got to see those bands and hang out with those guys. And I, I was around musicians a lot and, you know, hanging out with, with musicians, but I didn't really expect that I would be one. Really? It wasn't really on my radar to do that. I, I could play a couple chords huh. and, um, and then I started when I was about 15, I started listening to blues, hardcore, like Delta blues, you know, country blues stuff. One guy playing a guitar by himself mm -hmm. where you could hear everything and all the emotion is really raw and present. Yeah. And that became that was also it was like, oh, that that emotion and that feeling 
I were just related to it so much. And, and um, so I started trying to figure out how those guys played and then figured out also that some of them were still alive and oh, wow. still playing you, around. You saw the wolf, right? Did you get to see him? I never got to see oh. the wolf. I, I wish I, I saw a lot of people. Um, but there was this guy, there was, we had this, the world's biggest open air flea market. You would have loved it. You would have loved it to, to buy cool secondhand stuff. Yeah. And it was full of musicians playing music on early on a Sunday morning on the South side mm. of Chicago. Mm -hmm. It was like, just like these dirt lots and people set up these sawhorse tables to sell stuff. And these blues and gospel bands would set up and play. And they've been doing it since the 1910s. Wow. And so every great blues man and woman like got their start playing on Maxwell street, pretty much anybody who came through town would end up playing on Maxwell street. And it was still happening when I was a kid. And there was this guy, Maxwell street, Jimmy Davis, who became a good friend of mine uh, later, but I would see him play when I was a kid and he sang just like the wolf. He was a friend of the wolf and he learned how to play guitar from John Lee Hooker. Wow. And he carried all of that. And um, he was like a window to another world. He, he had yeah. been in the rabbit foot minstrels, traveling minstrel shows and had stories about that. God. So and, I got and, to- And you hung out with them and, and you just made it a point to get to know these people and spend time yeah. with them. Yeah, Isn't very much. Wow. That's I would watch, you know, like watch them. Like at first I was like, hang out and watch them play. Mm -hmm. and there's this other guy, David Honeyboy Edwards, who had been friends with Robert Johnson and he was Jeez. playing. It's such mythology now when you think about those people. It's hard to yeah. even, yeah, believe that, that, that it's real yeah, somehow yeah. because it's so mythical and so yes. iconic and yes, so big. Exactly. But like Honey Boy, you know, we became good friends. I, I started to sneak into bars to see him play when I was a teenager. And, and eventually I, I would open up for him and hang out at his house and play songs with him and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But um, how about your first guitar? When did you get that? And when did you decide to this? The, the decision is always what's interesting to me you decide to play music. It's like, wow. I mean, what a life-changing moment. You, you know? know, that's that's <laughs> such a good question. I know I, di I diverged and I <laughs> okay. sidetracked. No, I want to hear it all. It's, it's all kind of like, it, it's funny to me because I, I started playing guitar. I really love blues. I became obsessed with it. And I still wasn't playing gigs or anything it, it, for a while. You know, it wasn't until I was like 21 that I played a gig. Hmm. But I started to... Um, get the feeling that I could kind of do it, you know? And like somebody said, it sounded good. I, I started playing in the subway to try right. and make some money. Mm -hmm. I did construction work. I did like, you know, uh, I worked in oil refineries and I, I, you know, like industrial construction and I did residential construction. I was terrible at it. I only did it because <laughs> I thought that's what you're supposed to do if you're from Chicago. Like everybody I knew seemed to do that. But um, I hated it. And I thought there's, got to be an easier way to turn a buck and maybe this music thing so i went in the subway i knew like three hank williams songs because they were easier to play than blues songs and i loved hank i was obsessed oh, yeah. with hank williams too. yeah what a writer and i would sing those same three songs over and over again in the subway but i got them down i got those three songs down and you know you get used to like playing for an audience and i began to feel like i could do this you know, and it was somewhere in there. I think I started to get a my fantasy about music. It started to become something like, you know, once you start actually making money in your box in the subway, you're like, okay, this is more real now. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So there was some decision yeah. in there, I suppose. Uh, you know, I was probably about 20 years old, 21 okay. years old. Uh -huh. Huh. 
And then I, I met a guy who was a harmonica player and he was good named Rick Sherry. And we decided that we'd go out and start playing some shows together. You know, we'd done some open mics and things like that. And people liked it. I think one of the bars said, hey, why don't you do a gig and we'll pay you, you know, pay a hundred bucks or something like that. They still pay a hundred bucks, by the way. <laughs> but uh, that's another story. <laughs> I know it's got to be rough sometimes. But, you, you know, when I first heard you, it was it was like, Okay, forever. I'll be listening to this guy forever. I will never lose touch with his music and I will always want to hear it. That is, you know, <laughs> what a compliment that is coming from Pamela to bar people. <laughs> well, it's so true. Oh, let's hear something. You, yeah. you brought his guitar. Yeah, sure. Um, you have a new album out. I don't have a new album out yet. Well, it's newer, the newest one. Oh, the newest one. The newest yeah, yeah, one. sure. With big cake on the front. <laughs> yeah, right. They're coming after you. They're coming for me. Yeah, I want to hear that one. Me. Okay, Can we hear great. that one? Let's do it. This is the title song on Jake's most recent album. I left this note beside the bed In case I disappear In case I turn up dead Because I know they're coming for me Oh, they're coming for me Oh, they're coming for me There will be no sleep tonight Gotta slip away Before the morning light Oh, they're coming for me Oh, they're coming for me for me to get drunk on my tears make a meal out of my fears been following me for years all oh, they're coming for me all oh, they're coming for me What I should do, the places I once hid, the thoughts that I could trust. Right now, they're really few. All oh, they're coming for me. All oh, they're coming for me. They're coming for me. They track me through the mud. A war inside of blood. There's no safe neighborhood. Always get their first. Don't know how they know. Oh, they're coming for me. They're coming for me. to have you sit here right on my couch and do that <laughs> now who's coming for you 
Well, good question, because, you know, of course, I'm a Buddhist. And <laughs> yes. so, uh, you know, we talk about non-self. So, yes. so who's coming for whom would be a good question. <laughs> Um, yes. When I wrote that song, I, you know, writing songs for me, it's a feeling that there's something kind of rising up from the depths and I have to check it out and see what it is. I, I tend to be less of a clever type of songwriter who has a great idea and then wants to, you know, put that down and more just like I have a weird feeling in my toe and I have to, <laughs> you know, I have to kind of like wiggle it around and see what shakes loose. Uh, and that that song, you know, just started r rising up. And actually, there were some intense things that started showing up in my life just around that time, just mm -hmm. after I wrote the song. Um, that ha had to do with, I think, things I need to pay attention to and things that there, there were things coming after me that I wasn't paying attention to. Oh, okay. Parts okay. of my life that needed uh, uh, to be opened up to. Mm -hmm. So there was that. But then at the same time, I did have this kind of idea that I thought was clever, which was I wanted to write uh, a musical about Bigfoot. <laughs> and and I wrote this song uh, called Hey Bigfoot, which is also on the album. Yes. And I thought, you know, maybe they're coming for me. It could be part of his story because oh. he's always being hunted. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. OK. And so that was like, all right, like, OK, that, that could be in the Bigfoot musical. And then uh, I wasn't getting too many bites on the Bigfoot musical. I, I tried to like get some of my, uh, you know, oh. my my showbiz friends who who were theater people uh, to who might want to help write, but it didn't happen. So if anybody out there is interested in the Bigfoot musical, do you have all the songs written for it? I probably have like three. Okay. Yeah, we probably have to start over a little bit but hey bigfoot is yeah good that kind of really tells bigfoot's story in a certain oh we're gonna have to hear that before the hour's up i can't play it by myself oh. but it's on the record if yes anybody, it's on the you know, record buy it okay stream it something stream it yeah he gets 0 0.03 cents on that so <laughs> but if you stream it enough times i'm gonna get one cent <laughs> oh so um what was the first song you wrote you i mean you must remember that Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a little embarrassing. Uh, but yeah, I wrote this song called What You Gotta Do For Me, mm. which was like, it was this kind of joke about people's expectations in a relationship, you know, like uh, it was sort of like this guy laying out what this woman has to do if she wants to be with him. And, you know, it's very tongue in cheek, but it's, you know, it comes off a bit misogynistic, particularly in this day and age. Uh, <laughs> But yeah. Oh dear. Uh, well, you're a very romantic guy. Would yeah. you say that? Yeah, you know, I, I think so. I think you know the the feeling of just appreciating and being curious about life and other people is romantic. You know, mm -hmm. there's a romantic quality that yeah you want to have union with whatever sure. shows up. That's kind of what we're here for, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then relationship songs yeah i've definitely written some you know i mean how could you not yeah. right yeah. but yeah i think i would agree with that yeah well i've noticed that since i've known you you know and you always have real beautiful ladies around you yeah <laughs> you know but you have but, a beautiful one right now okay dolls we're gonna take a little break and i'll be right back and we're back well, but, you know, you know a lot about this and about musicians and about the magnetizing quality of um, mu music people. Yeah. Yeah. 
what is that? They're expressing something for us. I remember when I got turned on to Dylan in high school, it was like, how does he know that shit that's inside me? Right. So that's what is that is that the union you're talking about the, between the musician and the listener? Yeah, well, I think that that's that what you just said is a big part of it, that that somehow somebody gives voice to something for all of us or for me personally, that, you know, it yeah. speaks to me yeah. so yeah. personally. Yeah. And then there's something about you feel like, you know, this person because they bared their emotions so thoroughly. Right. And I think that's an interesting thing. I have this theory that, you know, for some people in order to feel comfortable in having sex or in connecting with a person they need to feel and and i don't know if this is true more for women than for men but they need to feel i think that this person is well respected by their peers almost like this part of their circle there's something there's something that is like uh makes it a, a known commodity to put it that way a no something known about this person and if you hear a person's songs and they bear their soul and they bear their emotions in a certain way and you feel like you know them it's as if they're part of your circle mm. in a way and it's also like huh. if all of your friends really like this person yeah. it's if they're part of your friend circle yes it's a real sharing kind of thing yeah so you some part of you feels like you you know this person and so being attracted to that person and being like wanting to like connect with this person, have a relationship, have sex with this person. It almost makes it like safe in this, in your somehow unconsciously, I think, you know, hmm. because you feel like, you know, them, you feel they've exposed their emotions. You already feel like, you know, their soul. Yeah. And so I kind of wonder sometimes if people who want to have sex with musicians on stage, it's partly that, feeling like you already know them and feeling like they've already, you've already been touched by them. You've already connected with them in a certain way. Hmm. What do you think of that? Huh. I hadn't thought of it like that, but yes, certainly I would have sex with Dylan right now here on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to clear because a little spot. Of <laughs> because of that, because of what you just said, for sure. Because, you know, a lot of times it's not even the physicality, although some I've been with some cute guys, but, you know, it is more of that soul connection that that you want and you feel like they're expressing some of it for you, even if it's just through their guitar playing or something. Right? Yeah. You know, there was a lady here at the party who was really nuts for you. I noticed that. Oh, yeah. She was crying. Yeah. Did you notice? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Wow, she was so touched by you. Does that what does that feel like? It's really meaningful to yeah. me, you know. Yeah. That wow. um that you know, people that they feel some kind of openness and um vulnerability that yeah, happens yeah. through the music, which I feel the same way. I mean, that's why I became so obsessed with those early Beatles records and those blues mm -hmm. records, because I I was able to access a level of vulnerability that maybe otherwise I would not have been able to. And so I sort of feel like Lennon and McCartney and the other guys are kind of helped with that. And like, sure you know, did. Honey Boy Edwards and those people helped with that, helped me access something. And I think it might be like that for her and for other people too. Yeah. And, I, and I really appreciate that. And I feel also a, a bond with them in those yeah. moments. Yes, that's what I, yeah, of course. It's a, for me, the feeling of that 
is like it it's like it's hot right in the middle of your solar plexus and it kind of opens up like a, a fan oh that's beautiful it, it's an amazing feeling and when you're touched by music i was blissed out on saturday i don't know if you noticed <laughs> i bliss out <laughs> to your music but it's a it's a it's a feeling of oneness that it creates when yeah. you're touched by someone's music and you're connected to that and you're not alone. I mean, it's just a very powerful thing, what you're doing, right? And I love what you said too about the heart opening, yeah. you know, the possibility of accessing the heart in yeah. a certain way and, yeah. and you know, really that's connecting. What, that's what it's about, you know, great mm -hmm. music or great art, any great art. If mm -hmm. I stand in front of Van Gogh painting, the same thing, something happens. Yeah, it's very like, much. Ugh. And, you know, he's alive, you know, because the soul never dies and all that. <laughs> yeah. We could go there too. Yeah. <laughs> when did you become a Buddhist? Yeah. So, you know, I, I had this little problem with heroin. Yes. And, uh, you know. Was, and how long did you have that problem for? Uh, yeah. First shot dope when I was 15. Oh, but boy. I, I didn't get heavy into dope until I was probably in my late teens, early 20s. And then it started to get to be a real problem with overdoses and, you know, mm. drug habits. And, you know, I, but I would clean up for a while and just do booze or just do other stuff. And then, you know, fall, get, get back into the dope. I actually moved to L.A. trying to escape my Chicago dope habit. And of course, you know, the dope was everywhere here. <laughs> I moved into a, a, a SRO hotel in downtown L.A. and it was, you know, it was all around me. Well, we should hear that song. Oh yeah, yeah. That's called the hotel, right? Yeah. What do you think? Should I do that? Then I'll I'll continue. Or? Yeah, yeah. Might Let's as well do it. do it now since you brought it up. Then we'll continue with that. Very interesting story. There was a, a guy here who had who related to that song so much because he had been through the same thing. Oh yeah. Did you meet him? I don't want to say. Yeah, we him. won't say. We, we won't out out him. But yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. Yeah, that song. Uh, yeah, I, I get. I get phone, I get emails, I guess, and messages about that song from uh, from people with, with, you know, drug problems or people in their family have drug problems. It's a pretty dark song, but as you know, Jake is sitting here right now and he's a Buddhist, so you don't have to worry about him. Yeah, right. And so we're going <laughs> to, we're going to connect the dots between heroin and Buddhism in just a minute. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> the hotel stands in disrepair. The tenants, they don't seem to care. Rent is cheap and the bulbs are bare. Good life for playing solitaire. The bar is open down below. Beer is flat, but the beer is cold. Good enough for rock and roll. Good enough to violate parole. Put the box in pawn again. Homie, where'd you get the blue skin? Got a monkey like a Siamese twin. Keeps the walls from closing in. Oh, oh, fix me now, won't you? Fix me. Oh, oh, fix me now. Bathroom is down the hall. Share the creep, share the crawl. Leave a blood stain on the wall. Clean up with hypodermosol. Locks change, rent late. Blue 
the money on a little weight. I wish that chick would turn another day. Too sick to communicate. Jimmy in the door and sneak inside. Still eight by 12 feet wide. Just enough room for a man to hide. Unless he's under supply. Oh, oh, fix me now. Won't you fix me? Oh, oh, fix me now. again in the afternoon cut the deck and deal the press pay the boss who lives upstairs he got no friends and got no cares gonna throw me out next time he swears shoe box amidst debris keeps a lid on used to be guitar picks and a degree in surviving Disharmony, oh, oh, fix me now, won't you fix me? Oh, oh, fix me now, fix me. you what is it about that though what does it make you feel like um i mean is it just obliterates reality well yeah it does that yeah, too yeah. <laughs> you know the way i can i can relate what it feels like is that when i was a kid i think i i felt so afraid uh something bad was going to happen i mean part of it is maybe the environment in Chicago, part of it was the home environment and what was happening. But I I ate candy, like kids eat candy, but I mean, I got jobs so I could save up money to buy candy and hide it everywhere. So there's always sugar. And then I would oh. ditch school and just sit in front of the TV. And it was the TV and the sugar. One of my earliest memories was getting up at like, middle of night, three years old and grabbing a stick of margarine and sticking it in the sugar bowl and eating the whole thing. And sugar and and food and TV kind of helped for a while to, to not have to be with some of the, the very painful things that I I don't think I could be with, you know, I didn't know how to be with them. I think the music gave me a little access to being with feelings, but I had no way you know, of course, as a kid, you have no power really either to kind of deal with things and sort of, you know, find a mature wisdom, you know, the wisdom's not there yet. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, I got into drugs and alcohol. When I discovered alcohol, I was just amazed 
that something could make me feel so good and feel so comfortable in my own skin, which I think that's what I was basically mm-hmm. after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, just, yeah. I didn't feel comfortable in my skin. And, and when right. I drank alcohol, I felt like I felt so good and I felt funny and I felt powerful and I was funny sometimes. And another part of me opened up. Yeah. And I got to be a really sloppy drunk by the time I was in my mid teens. Too bad. It's so bad for you. That's a problem. Yeah, I know. I know because (laughs) there was, it was fun sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But it would take me all the way down and Mm -hmm. I would pass out and black out and do things that, you know, or go to jail, all kinds of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And then with heroin, I didn't fall down as much. Like I didn't, you know, I wouldn't, I didn't black out. I mean, I did overdose eventually, but I, I felt a little bit more in control somehow. Hmm. And I felt also like I could handle anything. Right. And also felt like a lot of euphoric feeling. Yeah. And uh, there must be that comfort, comfort, basically. Comfort. Okay. A lot of com- huh. mother's huh. comfort, Ooh. like in, in a substance. I used to sit with your mother and watch you play. Oh, yeah. Yeah. At <laughs> the Redwood. Yeah. You know, she she must have been a real interesting person to grow up with. Well, I didn't grow up with her. She left oh. when I was about two. Oh, uh, so okay. I, I didn't actually get to know her till a little later in life. Oh, okay. She yeah. was pretty cool. I got along great with her. She was really cool. I, I know she loved music too. And she yeah. was also yeah. played blues, like on guitar. She played a little guitar huh. when she was pregnant with me and she was listening to these old oh, records. Oh, how about that? Yeah. That's really interesting. You know, you, you know, we obviously can't go into your whole childhood here, but are you going to ever write about your life? I know you do it in song, of course. But, you know, I have to get some I'll have to take one of your classes. Yes. I, mean, I, <laughs> I wrote 150 pages of memoir during the during the first year of COVID just to kind of get wow, a bunch of stuff Jay, down while great. it's in my mind. Oh, you should send them to me so I can look at it. I'd be happy to. I mean, it's there's a few parts that I think are are reader friendly, but, you know, it's, it's mostly this happened, this happened and not set up real interesting. Some of it is is more poetic, but, you know. Well, it takes, you, I mean, you know it, what? It's emotion that has to, you have to put in there and feelings. You know, I, I, I work with a lot of writers and a lot of times they just say this happened, that happened, then this happened. That. You have, what did you feel about that? What was the motion behind that? You know, what got you there? That kind of stuff. Instead of just saying this, this, and this. But, you know, you already do that in your songs. I'm sure it'll come into your memoir writing. I find that writing, writing, like songs, you know, it's a small uh you know it's it's a it's such a smaller form in a way i mean it's it's big in a certain sense but it's and it's very powerful because it connects writing and it connects you know uh melody and it connects emotions in a certain way and brings them all all together it makes the syllables land the words land in a certain way it brings you know lyrics and, and and writing together in that way but but writing long form i find it really daunting and you know to to go back and go through not to mention going through one's life like you've done yeah so you know when you go through it you have to actually visit revisit those Mm -hmm. areas of your life you can't you can't kind of phone it in and i found that to be pretty shocking actually to you know go through these stages of my life writing and just like I couldn't even talk to anybody else for weeks. Sometimes I just felt like completely. Oh, like well, there. you really got into it then. Okay, good. That's a very good sign. But it was <laughs> it was difficult. I mean, like with a song, I might get in and out in a week or yeah, right. two. 
<laughs> you know, with that, I felt like it was months and months of, ugh. oh, my God. And then you got to go back and, you know, roam through it again. So maybe someday, but, uh, you know, I'll talk to you about that. Yeah, I've been pointers. trying to to get men's memoir workshop and I cannot get enough men to sign up. Oh. I get one or two and then I get maybe three interested. I got to have a half a dozen or more in a class to, you know, to interact and you know, discuss. And men are much less likely to talk about their emotions in front of other men, mm. in front of almost anyone, really, compared to women. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, women were, are, are, you know, the first class, they're a little tentative. By, by the second class, they are sobbing and then yelling. And I mean, you know, <laughs> It's pretty great. You got to go there, don't you? <laughs> yes, yes. You you have to go there to make it work, to make people be touched by it, you know, because they'll relate to their issues, you know. Yeah. And that's why your songs, you know, they're a jolt. That's why that lady was crying the other day. Mm. A song is a four, three, four minute jolt to the soul, you know. Yeah. So, but reading a book can do that to you, too. Oh, course. for sure. You can, you know, really, really take you there. I mean, you, you take people there. You take people right in there. You know, they're, they're in the room with you and, and whomever. <laughs> you know, I was very careful in that book not to get graphic or anything. You know, a lot of books came out later that did, that, you know, but I, you know, I, some of it's personal. You, you want them to feel what was going on, but you don't have to get graphic. Mm -hmm. which, yeah. I didn't mm -hmm. do yeah, it. yeah, you can do it. I mean, it's there's very skillful ways to take somebody there and you you know leave some space for them to kind of imagine, yeah, imagine too, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is great, which I think is important in songs too, where it's not all yes, out. right. Yeah, well, people must ask you, what does that mean, and all that. Does that bother you as a songwriter? No, I mean it's an interesting conversation to have because then you can kind of maybe find out what it means for them and what mm, was important mm, about it for them mm. and you know how that uh, affected them in a certain way yeah and i always find that interesting hmm, yeah it probably affects different people a different way they relate to it something in their memory right yeah wow yeah wow. i mean it's there's something that can be very yeah. personal or a time in their life that you know, they're going through something in a certain song that becomes the kind of soundtrack for that yeah. time in their life yeah, yeah. or a certain album and you know, so to go back to yeah, the, to go to back the, to the heroin and the Buddhism. Yeah. <laughs> I um so I got clean. I was here in LA and I, it took me a long time. It was a lot of rehabs and a lot of, you know, stopping and starting. And I, I got a lot of help here in LA. And I think it was a good place for me to be because there were so many artists who had come out the other side, people mm. I could really relate to. Right, right. Not the other side. And uh, so, you know, I did 12 steps and all of that kind of stuff and had good sponsors who really, um, you know, gave me a lot of help, helped me get into rehabs and stuff. And it took a long time. Um, and I, I really wanted to get sober, but it was kind of like it had been my whole life when the really, I mean, I can't even say that something really painful showed up and then I would go and get high. It was, it was less conscious than that. It was just suddenly it would be like, this invisible rope was pulling me to the dope spot and I had no control mm. over it at all. And when oh. it came, that was that. Wow. And you wow. know, I just felt completely like, you know, zero power in the situation. 
Um, but, you know, I really wanted to get clean and I was trying to get help and I was asking for help. And, it's, you know, I even called a guy one time. I had a bunch of balloons on the table and he showed up and we flushed him down the toilet. Oh, and, boy. You know, that kind of thing. And, and eventually something started to turn. And, you know, because people ask about that a lot, like, what was the yeah, magic yeah. turning point or how mm -hmm. did, you know, how did you? Yeah. And I don't know exactly, but um, there seemed to be some kind of karmic pattern shift thing that happened. And I don't know if it was partly from putting this effort in over and over again and yeah. trying to yeah. do something different. That makes you know? sense. But There's another invisible rope. Another invisible <laughs> rope. And I'll tell you that yeah. the day I got clean, I left my fourth or fifth rehab and I wa I had my plastic bag over my shoulder and I'm walking on the street and I had nobody really to hardly ask for money or anything, but mm. I got some drugs together somehow and, uh, and stole a, a half gallon of rum from a party. I'm sorry if it was your party. I, <laughs> actually, I know exactly whose party it was. Oh, you do? Probably somebody, you know, but uh, I, uh and I was making a mess of myself at the party and I walked out and I, I got, I was in downtown LA at three in the morning arguing over the size of a $5 crack rock with a guy who pulled out a gun oh. and said, Whoa. you know, you, you can leave now or else kind of situation. And something weird happened in that moment where I could, I could, I could kind of see sort of from above looking down and see that I was, I don't almost like possessed or something. It was, it was so weird to see that there was this thing happening mm -hmm. and it was just kind of had its own volition. It was on its own railroad tracks and like, I couldn't <sighs> quite stop it, but something stopped my mind in that moment, just seeing it all. And I backed off and I got in the car and in the next morning I woke up and I tried to figure out what to do. Like, do I go to a meeting? Do I go get more drugs? <gasps> and there's just a very, very strong voice in me that said, just go to the meeting and everything's going to be okay. It was so strong. It was so powerful. I've never <gasps> had an, an experience really like that before. It was more than just an intuitive feeling. It was really like a voice and it was very, very powerful. And so I walked to this meeting. I walked several miles to this meeting, to this noon meeting. And there was this, uh, this woman there, this older woman, um, whose first, well, I shouldn't say her first name even because it's such, she has such an unusual first name, no. but <laughs> She was okay. Was before the meeting started, and she had a sandwich. And she said, "Look, I have I have this sandwich. Would you like half of it? Um, I can't eat the whole thing." And it was so meaningful to me what happened in that moment that that I was being offered or offered sustenance. That yeah. actually everything was okay. Like I I hadn't eaten in two days. Oh. I was starving. Oh my gosh! And I got this sandwich, and I just started crying and weeping, and uh -oh. I suddenly knew like I, everything was okay. And in that moment, everything was okay. And I didn't have to, I didn't have to use drugs. Yeah. And it was weird because it was sort of like this, something had really shifted. And not only that, but over the next week or so, there was a lot of just interesting coincidences and things that happened. And I suddenly saw this beauty in life that I hadn't mm. experienced before. And I became very, very curious about it. And there'd been all of this talk about spirituality and the 12 step programs. And yes. I didn't grow up with that. And, but I wanted to, I started praying because my sponsor said to. Right. And so I was following those guidelines, uh, the 12 step guidelines. And they had this one step, the 11th one that mentioned meditation. I want to know what is that? And I was mm. seeing a therapist also at the time. And she had a picture on her wall of this Tibetan guy. I didn't know he was a Tibetan guy. He's wearing a suit. 
And I thought, who's this guy? And I, there's a lot of little things coming together, little threads. And the guy turned out to be Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was a great Tibetan uh, Buddhist teacher. Right. And I got one of his books um, called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, his famous book. Yeah. And it really spoke to me. And I found that he, he kind of jumped out of the pages. He was very poetic and funny and very to the point, but not, um, not heavy religiosity. Right. And I just really related to how human it was and how he expressed a path that was very human. And it was about opening up to every moment of one's life and not right. spirituality right. is some separate thing way over here. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I knew that for one thing, if I wanted to stay sober, I needed to continue to follow a spiritual path that it was inherent in the 12 step things that I'd been learning. And then I found a path that actually really spoke to me. And so um, I guess, you know, I technically became a Buddhist when I took refuge in about 2001 or 2002. So about 20 years ago. Gosh, and it's been um, that long, huh? But, you know, I always say that if it wasn't for uh, how difficult things got in my life, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have hit a wall and had to uh, find some other, you know, direction mm -hmm. to look. As they say, you know, once you go all the way down, there's only one way to look and that's up. Yes. Of <laughs> yes. course, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, we actually say, well, we open completely down too. We open up deeper down into all of those emotions, into all of the buried, you know, things, and, mm. into all of it. Are there different types of Buddhism? I'm, of course, there are. But is the basic tenet the same? Is happiness in this life? Isn't that part of Buddhism's happiness for you, yourself, and your loved ones? That's a really interesting question. Um, there is a lot of commonality in many of the Buddhist schools. Um, you know, there's a lot of different traditions, of course. There's the early schools, the southern schools that spread throughout southern Asia, and then and there's the northern schools, the Mahayana schools of that spread up north, and then there's Vajrayana Buddhism, which is um, you know, uh was alive in India and then uh found a home in, in Tibet and then has now been brought, you know, all, all over the place and has also been alive in some other countries. And amongst all of the schools, um this looking into what one's experience is and not taking anything for granted, it seems mm -hmm. to be one of the most important things that the mm -hmm. Buddha taught right. is, you know, like, for instance, what is happiness? What actually makes me happy? What if I actually look into that? And rather than, you know, thinking I know, well, I have this label that I call happiness. And mm. I believe that it's what happens when I eat haagen or it's what happens <laughs> when I have nice sex or it's what happens at this time or that time. What happens if I actually look into what that experience is? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the important things that seems to be uh, a commonality amongst many of the Buddhist schools is looking into direct <clears throat> experience. And what we say in my tradition is that experience happens in the body. It doesn't happen in the thinking mind. Mm -hmm. So once we go below these uh what we take for granted, these labels that we have about reality, we might discover more in the body and see what the body actually has to show us about things. What mm -hmm. does, you know, the heart, like you express when it opens, what mm -hmm. does it have to show mm -hmm. us about mm -hmm. this person, mm -hmm. about this music? Um, what do, what does intuition uh, in our, in our soma mm -hmm. have to show us about things? And mm -hmm. um, how do we, you know, actually open up to someone else beyond what we, who we think they are and beyond what we think they are. So that's one one thing. And so happiness as a concept 
it's it's interesting because we're all looking for um uh, you know opening up to what our life is and as you know there is something inherently joyful i think about being alive yeah i do too i do too but a lot of people don't have that right yeah so you know that's what's making the world kind of seemingly difficult uh because there are a lot of very unhappy people here it's true it's true and i and i and i would say probably you know we all are experiencing a lot of unhappiness constantly throughout our day and there's a lot of things kind of going up and down and one minute things look great and the next minute they look really bad and we kind of buy into this idea that now things are really bad but they're going to be better yes it's always in the future that's always in the future exactly yeah and in buddhism another commonality is that we say actually the only place to have our experiences in this present moment there's not another place to have there is nothing but now anyway Right. And so whatever's happening now, what happens if we open up to it beyond our concept of what we think it is and experience it directly? And what is said in the tradition, but, you know, the Buddha, of course, says, have your own experience, see if you see what you discover. And this is where, you know, in my tradition, meditation plays an important role mm-hmm. is to, um, you know, keep letting go keep letting go see what's there keep letting go you know and see what's there and uh open and look and open and look over and over and over again and what we might discover after a while is that even in a situation that might be very painful and have a lot of uh sort of negative connotations there could be a lot of appreciation for what's happening for what's arising for the for who's arising for the emotion that's arising for the situation and that there's a kind of purity and a trust Mm -hmm. that we begin to have in all of it yeah well that's the real you or whatever you want to call it right yeah yeah that's the real you down in there those layers and layers of onions you know a lot of religions and spirituality talk about peeling of the onion you know yeah exactly right i mean it's a similar kind of thing right where you just and meditation Amazing things happen. I mean, I, I don't meditate enough. Uh, but when when I do get there, it's just like, wow, there's, a, you know, everything fades away. Everything fades away. And I have this weird thing on the top of my head that keeps happening. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Here, let me look. Can I see it? <laughs> it, all, it feels like an ant's crawling around. On oh, top yeah. Of the energetic body is, is you know, <laughs> underneath our physical body, there's an energetic body, of course. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's very live uh, and, it, and it can be very tingly yeah. feeling. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a, it's a crown chakra. I know mm-hmm. something's going on up there. <laughs> oh, you know, you have a song about Tiny in the Well, which reminds me of, of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. It's, it has something to do with the depths of humanity right i think you're right the tiny is the is the the true self yeah you know it's it's interesting that's another one of those songs that kind of you know came out of a little wiggle in a toe or (laughs) or something and actually i i got done uh with being on a meditation retreat for a month Mm. uh and i was there with uh my ex-wife abby did you ever meet oh yeah sure and uh i meditated with her with you oh yeah right <laughs> and we were on this meditation retreat together and we came home and we broke up right I mean, it was like all this intense stuff came up we were you know practicing all day every day for a month and all these things rose to the surface and we broke up and you stayed friends though 
Well, we actually hadn't even been married yet. I think we broke oh. up and then we got back together. Oh. And then we got married <laughs> and we were together for another several years. <laughs> but um, when I, while we were broken up and I was at home, I'd broken my shoulder practicing Aikido and mm-hmm. my whole life seemed to be sort of bringing me into having to really be with myself and be alone. And I wrote an album of songs in a very short period of time, which is unusual for me. It happened just a couple of weeks. And Tiny was one of those songs that came out of that. And I, I think you're right. I think it really speaks to something about the human experience. Um, shall I play that yes, one? Yes, I would love to hear that. It, 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 it suggests that we all get tiny. Yeah, we all get small. <laughs> we right. all get small because, I, I mean, for me, that's what it it meant to me anyway. But like you said, people have different, you know, ideas about what it might mean. But for me, it was like, oh, it's so deep. It's as deep as the well that he's in. <laughs> yeah. Robert Patrick asked me if it was about my penis. <laughs> that was... Uh, I thought, wow, that was man, kind of rude. That was a little rude. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he hasn't actually seen my penis. But... Oh, boy. I was digging a well. With an old blood stain, poking me around with a blind man's cane. That's when Tiny came up on the scene. He fell in my well like a tiny drop of rain. He waved to me and I hunkered low. I saw some tiny things I never seen before. Little voice said, Let's get down tonight. I knew that Tiny was the way, all right. Tiny is the way, Tiny is the way, Tiny is the only way to go now. Let's all get small, go down the well between the tiny heaven and the tiny hell. Mustard seed, he's a whisper in the night. He can run, he can fly, he can deep sea die. He's so small, he never needs to hide. Can't pin nothing on him and make it stay. Cause Tiny gets smaller every single day. Tiny is the way. all get small go down the well between the tiny heaven and the tiny hell tiny has a book that's incredibly small i really can't read it cause i'm still too tall has illustration made by Tiny's hand of prehistoric creatures and a mighty man. Yet 
tells the story about a where time's been. Yes, he always keeps a record of what he's seen. I asked him to tell me who he's keeping it for. He said, when you get tiny, you won't ask no more. Tiny is the way. Let's all get small, go down the well, between the tiny heaven and the tiny hell, tiny is the way. <laughs> yes, in between the tiny heaven and the tiny hell, that's where we should be, right? <laughs> That's really the human thing, you know, in, yeah. in, the, um, in some of the Buddhist sort of descriptions of uh, this cyclic existence that people get stuck in that they call samsara. Mm. They describe these six realms and there's these God realms up here yeah. where yeah. people live for a long, long time. And these jealous God realms where they're kind of angry and they want to be gods. And there's this heaven realm that sort of has the possibility of pleasure and pain and this mm -hmm. animal realm of blow it. Mm -hmm. And then you have the, the hungry ghost realm and then these hell realms. And yeah. meanwhile, it's all kind of happening in this kind of confused state where all of these beings are kind of have this um, defensive quality and they're trying to, you know, look out for numero uno all the time. They're basically like stuck in this situation of trying to, hold on to something that's impermanent, which is so painful. Mm -hmm. it's, it's impossible yeah. to hold on to anything. It's it no is. security. Yeah. And uh. then, or trying to push something away that's so threatening and, you know, mm -hmm. always, or, or ignoring everything else and just feeling, um, you know, lost and not able to connect with what's actually happening. And so, you know, the, between the tiny heaven and the tiny hell, I think it's that this description of, being right in the middle of this samsaric cycle but it's said that it's it's really a good thing to be human because it's it's painful enough that you know that you need to work on yourself you know that you might yeah. figure out like hey it, i got to figure out how to get out of this situation <laughs> yes but it's pleasurable enough that you're not like so bogged down and i don't mean this for all humans because some humans are actually in such horrifying situations that they don't have any they don't have the opportunity to, to, to think of yeah. to do it yeah, yeah. spiritual path or yeah, yeah. you know just trying to get basic food and survival is is all they can do but they talk about this precious human birth where somebody might be able to hear teachings that open them up in their mm -hmm. life and that they mm -hmm. might actually mm -hmm. be able to find a way to open up beyond this this uh being stuck in trying to grab onto something and trying to push something away well, that the karmic wheel and all of that right i mean it's just you know, then you go, oh, wait a minute. I've already done this, haven't I? <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, uh, and we can be in those realms because I'm studying Nichiren Buddhism now. And we're studying those realms, oh, same yeah. exact realms. <laughs> and you, we can be in all of them in one day, in one hour. Psychologically, yeah, it's yeah. true. That, <laughs> right? You know, to take them as, as psychological states, it's mm -hmm. very true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that you could be, you know, completely stuck in a hell realm. Or you could be completely sort of like above it all, floating yeah, around yeah. in a God realm. In the same, in the same hour, even. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, you, it's all in your thoughts. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. It's in the thinking. 
We're getting pretty deep here with Jake Labatt's today. That's what I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we've... Uh, we've probably about, gone through yeah. an hour already, haven't <laughs> yeah, we? We have, we have. But I still want to hear another one. I another wrote down, song? Yes. Oh, I know. I want to hear Get Right. Oh, yes. Yeah, sure, it's a great sure. one to end on. I want to thank Jake for being here. It's such an honor and a pleasure and a thrill as, you, oh, as always. I'm so happy. So happy <laughs> to be able to see you and talk to you and, you know, do something creative together is so cool. Yes, it is. And of course, he'll be back in my yard as soon <laughs> as soon as possible. So, you know, keep, yeah. keep checking my Facebook page because as soon as COVID wanes, we're going to have Jake back and all of you can come here and go down the well yeah i'll be i'll probably be touring i have a new album coming out this summer oh goody so i'll probably be touring that and okay i'll, I'll talk to you whenever I'm yeah out the dates good well you know jake travels all over the world playing so please and a lot of tattoo parlors and clubs any all place over. you yes. know <laughs> I'll play you know i prisons whatever tattoo shops yeah, so you know. please catch him if you can your living room it's true yeah, yeah. i play all those places <laughs> true story yep there's a war outside we can no longer hide in the cave it's been said that soon we will all be deprived or depraved you just can't shake with the nervous system on the tape and no good dope to make you get right you get right you can hold it tight to my hand but there ain't no promised land and no Near to the breeze and a bend in your knees on a cake. Be strong and brave, but you can only take what you can take. Change hats, child, or flip coins. Start a club and hope somebody joins. Move your trouble to Des Moines or get right. church and let's go home there's not a tooth left in that cone before you take another bite get right screams can be heard from the ones who have learned to behave it's up to us now friend free yourself and then free another slave don't you run like an escape bee or try to hide up in a refuge tree. There's no one left to fight, so get right. Get right. Love and light or doom and gloom to decorate an overpriced little room. 
great advice in that song <laughs> is it there it's like do this everybody there's no one left to fight i like yeah. that you know that that a song could be a piece of advice um, yes it is and you know in, in some of the buddhist traditions actually they, they had these like spontaneous songs that they would sing that were basically practice advice i think where a, a teacher might sing them to his students or just kind of proclaim, proclaim it out loud to reality. But I think a lot of times it would be practice advice for the, for the students. Is mm -hmm. that interesting? Yeah. Well, that song is full of advice. You know that. And anyone who can write joins with Des Moines <laughs> is pretty brilliant. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to thank Jake for being here again. I love you, Jake. Love you too, Pamela. Mwah! See you soon. Yeah, see thank you real soon. Thank you for listening, everyone. their lives to jacking me down I was seen mostly in the country rarely in the town but times are tough with all this tragedy war and evil president can't get no coverage can't be a homeless shelter resident seem like nobody wants to see my beautiful hat wow what a story right and, you know, I wish you guys, if you haven't seen Jake, you better just Google him so you can see how gorgeous he is. <laughs> He's such a handsome devil. Mm -mm -mm. Anyway, what a story. And and it was, he was so forthcoming, and I really appreciate that. And I just want to thank you for listening to Pamela DeBar's Pajama Party on Pantheon Podcasts. And don't forget, you know, I have a fabulous new website, PamelaDeBarOfficial.com, where I sell all kinds of fun PDB merchandise i also have a new youtube channel yay it's all under pamela debar official it's pdb tv so please join me there and you know what they say like and subscribe <laughs> there's got to be a better way to say it i'll come up with it well thank you dolls for listening to my wonderful podcast with jake the bots <laughs>